Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Luke chapter 11. I'm going to go from verse 14 to verse 36, the story of how Jesus was challenged after having cast out a demon of a mute man, challenged by the Pharisees who said he was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. We're going to talk in this passage also about signs and how the Pharisees loved to ask for them and how Jesus would not give them a sign except for the sign of Jodom. Now, last audio, we did verses 1 through 14, which was the story of the Lord's Prayer and importunate prayer, the importunate friend, and how Jesus loves, how the Heavenly Father loves to give good gifts to his children when we pray to him. So that's the context. So we'll begin with verse 14 in Luke chapter 11. Now he, Jesus, was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. Now the first curious thing here is that Luke says the demon was mute. He was driving out a demon that was mute. Well, that's a strange way of saying because the the man himself, the possessed the possessed one, he was the one that was mute. So I don't know why Luke said it that way, but the point is the demon caused that man not to be able to talk. Jesus drove it out. The crowds were amazed because to see a mute man speaking was an amazing thing. Now, let's talk about the parallel passages here, if there are any. A.T. Robertson, Robertson says there are no parallel passages. This passage stands on its own. However, if we turn to Matthew 12, starting in verse 22, and perhaps Matthew 9, 32-33, we see two other passages where a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak, had a demon cast out, and was able and was able to speak. And the one, especially in Matthew 12, really sounds like a parallel passage to me. But the scholars dispute that, so we're not going to deal with Matthew 12, 22-23. It seems so parallel to me that they're talking about the same things. But it doesn't really matter. We'll just stick here with Luke. Go to verse 15 in Luke chapter 11. But some of them, the people standing by, some of them said he drives out demons, mainly the Pharisees, but some of them said he drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now we need to take up this name, Beelzebul. That's a Greek word, Beelzebul. The Hebrew word is Beelzebub. Now after looking through several authorities on this, it seems like it's a little bit confusing. So what I'm going to summarize it by saying is that the term Beelzebub we see first in 2 Kings 1-2. Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber. He was one of the northern kings of Israel, the upper chamber, which was in Samaria, the capital there, and became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go and inquire of Baalzebub, not Bull, but Bub. Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. Now, Ekron was one of the five Pharisee cities down there on the Shephelite on the plain there, on the, near the Mediterranean coast. And the name Beelzebub apparently meant God of the Flies. Lord, or Lord, I should say, Lord of the Flies. Now, there's some options as to what that means. It could have been that the idol was in the form of a fly that Ahaziah wanted to inquire about. John Gill suggests that. John Gill says perhaps there was an abundance of flies around the meat that was offered to this idol. John Gill suggests another option. Maybe the idol was invoked to drive away flies. You see various opinions on that. But at any rate, that's Beelzebub, and that was apparently a Hebrew parody because the Ekronites would not name their god, God of the Flies, most probably. Their original name was something that meant God of the Manor, I think. 
Baal, you recognize Baal in there. That's the typical Middle Eastern god that came from the Phoenician area. Astarte was his consort, famous Baal. Now when we get to Greek, to the Greek here in verse 15 of Luke 11, he said the Jews said he drives out demons by Beelzebul, not Bub, but Bull. Now Beelzebul apparently means Lord of the Dunghill, which is close to Lord of the Flies. Same idea. I don't know exactly how the name got changed. I think I've got a quote here from gotquestions.org, which says, well, actually, it's Wikipedia. After the time of the Philistines, the Jews changed the name to Beelzebul from Beelzebub. So either way, Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, or Beelzebul, Lord of the Dunghill, it was the name of a nasty Philistine god. And because he was so nasty, they eventually transferred the name to Satan. You see here in verse 15, it says, The Pharisees said that Jesus drove out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. That would be Satan, of course. Let me read you a quote from gotquestions.org. This name referenced the god of the fly that was worshipped to attain deliverance from the injuries of that insect. Some biblical scholars believe Beelzebub was, also, Beelzebub was also known as the God of Filth, which later became a name of bitter scorn in the mouth of the Pharisees. As a result, Beelzebub was a particularly contemptible deity, and his name was used by the Jews as an epithet for Satan. So that's the point, is that they were saying that Jesus was driving out demons by Satan. Now, if you think about it, that has got to be the dumbest things of all the dumb, stupid positions that the Pharisees took in the New Testament, why would Jesus be, if he was demonic, if he was if he was a, a demon himself, why would he be chasing out demons? If he was in league with Satan, why would he be chasing out Satan's demons? That's just stupid on the face of it. And Jesus is quick to point that out. Before we get to his defense, let's look at some scriptures that show that Jesus was often charged with being in league with Satan. He never was called Satan, actually. Nobody ever said, Jesus, you're Satan. But he was accused of being in league with Satan, Matthew 12, 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Matthew 12, 26 through 27, continuing in Matthew 12. Jesus says, Is Satan cast out Satan? He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now we're going to see the same thing said just a minute in Luke, so I'll move on from there. Mark 3.30. Again, these are different places than our, our situation here. Mark 3.30. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. John 7.20. The crowd answered, You have a demon who seeks to kill you. John 8.48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So they loved to accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon. This shows how blasphemous these people are. That's why they committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They would see the Holy Spirit working things right in front of them, and then they would call Jesus a devil, or say that he was possessed of a devil. Luke 11, verse 16, moving on. And others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. They just saw a mute man speaking. Had a demon cast out. That's not good enough for him. Again, Robertson has no parallel passages, but in the in Matthew 12:38, we we hear the scribes and the Pharisees saying to him, "Quote, teacher, we want to see a sign from you." In Matthew 16:1, the Pharisees and Sadducees approached and, as a test, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, Jesus had just uh, healed that mute man. They couldn't recognize that he was the Messiah, even after seeing that. 
They wanted to see a spectacular miracle, maybe something in the sky, like Luke eleven sixteen and others tempted him, sought of him a sign from heaven or from the sky. This would really be a messianic miracle. All those other miraculous healings that Jesus had done weren't good enough for him. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown points out that they were willing to concede that Jesus' miracles were real. They didn't argue that, but they weren't big enough. They needed a big miracle to convince them he was the Messiah. I don't care if Jesus lifted the earth off its axis, uh, made the earth spin backwards on its axis. They weren't going to believe him. It didn't matter what, what he did, because they were full of it. They were murdering swine, and they were not interested in whether Jesus was the Messiah or not. They, all they wanted to do was to kill him. So Jesus gave them a sign from history instead. He rose again on the third day. Here, now, why did Jesus refuse to give them a sign? Because they were obviously asking, this, asking him to do the sign in order to test him, to provoke him. And as I just said, they wouldn't have believed anyway if he would given such a sign. They were obviously asking out of their unbelief, as the NIV Study Bible says. What kind of a sign might have made them happy? For example, maybe if they saw the sun and the moon stand still in the sky. Maybe if they saw manna raining from heaven. Or maybe thunder and light, like a thunder and lightning at the giving of the law. They saw thunder and lightning in the sky at Jesus' command. Something like that. Luke 11, verse 17 through 18. Knowing their, their thoughts, he told them, he, Jesus, told the Pharisees, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against itself, himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebul. And there's the obvious answer to their charge. It doesn't make any sense for me to be driving out demons if I'm in league with the ruler of the demons. I'd be driving out the, the, my boss's demons, which doesn't make any sense at all, any more than a... The kingdom divided would, is, would be Satan on one side. And if Jesus is in the same kingdom with Satan, then that kingdom would, would be divided with Satan trying to keep the demons in the people and Jesus trying to drive the demons out of the people. And that would mean destruction for such a kingdom. So Jesus is just, is just using a everyday analogy here to show that it's stupid to say that anybody would be driving out demons by the power of Satan. Not just Jesus, anybody would be. That's just stupid. Let's go to verse 19 of Luke chapter 11. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, who is it your sons drive them out by? For this reason they will be your judges. Now Jesus goes to another argument. First of all, he said it's illogical that I'd be driving out demons. And then he, then he uses a U2 argument, a two cork way, if you will. Hey, a so's your old lady argument. <laughs> or your, your, your lady wears army, your mama wears army boots. In other words, I'm not going to even bother to defend what you're saying. I'm just going to point out that you're doing the same thing you're accusing me of. Your sons, the Pharisees would. They would try to drive out demons. They had their old rabbinic formulas. And they're trying to drive out demons at least. And so Jesus is saying, so, so if they're trying to drive out demons, what's the, who are they driving them out by? And, of course, Jesus is hinting very broadly that they're driving them out by the devil, that they're trying to drive them out by. Well, actually, what he's saying is is they, they're not driving them out in name by the devil uh, because that would be stupid. You, you don't drive out demons. You don't drive out demons in league with the ruler of the demons. So when your sons are driving them out, who, who, who are they driving them out by? They're doing the same thing I'm doing. You're not mad at them. Of course, those Jewish exorcists were probably driving demons out in the name of Yahweh or something like that. But the point is, is they, they're driving out demons. You don't get mad at them. Why, why, why are you getting mad at me? For this reason, they, 
your people, your Pharisees are going to be your judges. They're driving out demons. Why don't you go after them? Now, the NIV study Bible here says that Jesus is not claiming that the Pharisees actually drove out demons, but rather that they were claiming to drive out demons by the power of God. And that might be. But I ask a question. Is it possible that by using the name of Yahweh, they could be successfully exercising demons? It could be. In fact, we're going to see right here in a little bit, Jesus gives an analogy of somebody cat driving somebody out of the house and leaving it clean and then seven demons worse driving a demon out of the house leaving it swept and clean and then seven demons worse come in the house well the demon was driven out was it not depends on how you interpret that but that is a possibility that that's what he's talking about in which case then the the Jewish people were driving out demons that actually wouldn't surprise me although the NIV study Bible disagrees with that we go to verse 20 in Luke chapter 11. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. It's in other words, where the kingdom is, demons ain't. And he's saying, uh, no, I'm not driving out demons by Beelzebul. I'm driving out demons by the finger of God. I'm driving out demons by God, by God the Father, by Yahweh. I'm not driving them out by the devil. And therefore, I'm telling you, the kingdom of God has come to you. Now, of course, you're not listening, and you don't care. The finger of God is figurative for the power of God. Jameson Fawcett Brown points out. It's like God is pointing his fingers at the demon and saying, scram. And so when Jesus cast out a demon, he's in effect being the finger of God and pointing himself at the demons and say, get out of here. Matthew 12, 28 in the, the other passage, which sounds like the parallel passage, but which nobody can agree on. In that passage... It, Matthew says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God. That's the same thing. The idea is it's God, not Beelzebul. Luke 11, verses 21 through 22. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. The point of this homely analogy here is... The strong man is the devil. He's fully armed. He guards his estate. He's trying to keep his demons in the people. He thinks his, the demons are secure in the people he's possessed. But then somebody stronger than him comes along. That would be Jesus. And then he attacks and overpowers the, the, the strong man, the devil. And he takes from him, takes from the devil all his weapons he trusted in, all of his demons. And he divides up his plunder, divides up the demons. So, again, he's just, again pointing out the power he has over demons which is good for us to remember because the same Jesus that has all that power over demons is the same Jesus that lives in us we don't need to be frightened by any accusations or works of the devil let's note this word stronger but when one stronger than he attacks that's referring to Jesus Jesus was showing that it was foolish to say he was using Beelzebul to cast out demons because he was stronger than Beelzebul he had overpowered and disarmed him, so it would be stupid to say that Jesus was using his power. Why would he be using the power of Beelzebul when the Beelzebul was an attacked and overpowered being who had lost all of his weapons and who had all his plunder divided? Jesus doesn't need to be in league with some pitiful little Satan like that. Notice how <laughs> Jesus, Jesus was not scared of the devil. I mean, the devil was scared of him. I love to say that because we need to be the same way. Luke 11, verse 23. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is still talking here the same theme about whose side everybody's on. Anybody who's not with me, that, of course, would be any 
body that's supporting those demons, or that, or or the demons themselves, they're against me. Everyone who does not gather with me scatters, and of course that would be all the Pharisees who are not gathering with Jesus scatters. So he's trying to say, look, I'm on my side. Don't say I'm on the devil's side. When you do that, you're against me, and you're scattering my people all over the all over the place. Now notice how impossible it is to be neutral with Jesus. Anybody who's not with me is against me. How many people say, well, you know, Jesus is a good person. I just talked to an ex-Presbyterian Jewish lady who started talking about how nice all the religions of the world were, the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Christians, the Presbyterians, the Jews, the Catholics. Well, all that's nice and good, but I'm telling you, if she's not with Jesus, she's against him. And Jesus himself said that. So let's quit this nonsense about saying Jesus is just one of many good religions or good prophets or good people in the world or good religious figures in the world. That's not good enough. Now we need to distinguish that phrase from Luke 9:50 in another context. Somebody was preaching the gospel that wasn't one of the disciples and, and Jesus told the, the disciple, his disciple complaining about it, don't stop him because whoever is not against you is for you. Now that person referred to was not against Jesus. He was preaching the gospel. He just wasn't doing it as one of the twelve. And so Jesus is saying, look, he's not against you. He's preaching the gospel. Therefore, he's on your side. So quit complaining about it if he's just in a different church than you, to put it in modern contemporary language. That's not the same here. Because when Jesus is saying anyone who is not with me, he's not talking about somebody who's not in the apostolic band but who's still preaching the gospel. He's talking about anybody who is not with me and is a nasty, wicked Pharisee going around accusing me of blasphemy accusing me of being in league with the devil and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So we need to distinguish those two situations. The one who, let's, let me repeat that. In, in Luke 11, verse 23, the one who is not with Jesus and is against Jesus is were the Pharisees preaching evil. And in Luke 9, 50, the person who was not with Jesus was not was preaching the gospel, but not as a member of the Twelve. And so therefore, he was said to be not against Jesus but with him. That word gather, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters in verse 23. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says it probably refers to gleaners and fields. I, maybe that's what the uh, the metaphor was. I think what it means is those who don't gather souls into the kingdom. It was well, That was the ultimate reference. Now let's go to Luke 11, verse 24 through 26. When an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it roams through waterless places looking for rest and not finding rest. It then says, I'll go back to my house where I came from. And returning, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven of the spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that man's last condition is worse than the first. Now, here's some options as to what Jesus was referring to with this little analogy. The NIV Study Bible, option number one, says that he was referring to failed Jewish exorcists who could not cast out demons. Well, I'm pointing out to you, no, it says when an unclean spirit comes out of a man, that means that the Jewish exorcist did not fail to cast the demon out, if this is the true interpretation of this passage, because he did cast the unclean spirit out. It roams through waterless places, waterless places, demons like deserts, you know, that's where it's uncivilized and nasty out there. It warms through waterless places looking for rest. Finding none, it says, I go back to the house where I came from. So this interpretation says that the demon not cast out by the name of Jesus, but by cast, cast, but being cast out by Jewish methods, is just going to come right back into the uh, into the possessed person and bring seven other demons worse than himself back in. That's how bad those Jewish exorcists were. 
Well, that's nice, but I don't believe that that's what the verse means. The NIV Study Bible actually has another interpretation that I agree with. He's saying that Jesus is referring to the evil nation of the Jews. Jesus has swept Israel clean of demons. When an unclean spirit comes out of a man, in other words, when the spirits have left the, the nation of Israel because Jesus had driven the spirits out. And he takes one as an example and says, when an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it roams through waterless places looking for rest. And then it says, I go back to my house where I came from. And returning it finds the house swept and put in order. In other words, Jesus did all his teaching, all his preaching, cast out all those demons, and then you're going to put him up on a cross and kill him. And you're going to be nastier and evil and more corrupt and more subject to God's judgment than ever you were before. And so that's what it means when that demon brought seven other demons and entered in the house. That means Jerusalem or Israel was even a more demonic place than it was before Jesus came and cast out and did the spiritual cleansing he was doing in the nation by casting out all those demons. He cleaned the place up, and then the Jews are going to fill it up with demons seven times worse than they were before. And again, I think seven is a symbolic number referring to the divine perfection, you know, the perfect number of demons. <laughs> so I think that's what Jesus meant here. I don't think this has to do with individual exorcism, although I've heard it said, used many, many times by people who do cast out demons, but I really don't think that's appropriate. Now, notice that he says that the seven evil spirits that came back into the house were more evil than the first one itself. John Gill says that this shows that there's a hierarchy of evil among demons. I believe that. I remember reading some back when I started studying the occult. I noticed that they had the that they had these Satan tournaments, these where they would try to do demonic uh, exercises of power. And it was like a double elimination tournament. They'd climb up the hierarchy. And if you really got good and you could stop a speeding bullet with your hand and that kind of thing, then you got to meet the big boy himself. You got to meet Lucifer himself, that kind of stuff. I believe that the, the demonic kingdom is extremely hierarchical. Luke 11, verse 27 through 28. As he was saying these things, a woman from the crown raised her voice and said to him, The womb that bore you and the one who nursed you are blessed. He said, Even more, though he, Jesus, said, Even more, those who hear the word of God and keep it are blessed. Now, I, apparently a woman, perhaps, not apparently, but a, perhaps a woman from the crowd saw Mary standing around Jesus and then was that that instigated the acclamation here, the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you were blessed. Maybe, maybe not. And of course that was true. Mary was blessed. But Jesus said even more of those who hear the word of God and keep it are blessed. That's a good verse for Catholics. You like the Virgin Mary? Yeah, she's blessed. She's the blessed Virgin Mary. But even more, those who hear the word and keep it are blessed. Much more important things than blessing the Virgin Mary. This woman who said this was probably a, a mother herself. Remember, in Israel, every mother wanted to have the Messiah, wanted to have children in general. And so when the woman looked at Jesus and said, Wow, casting out demons, that's amazing. What a son. So it's natural that a woman would think that way about a mother having such a son would be blessed. Luke 11, verse 29. As the crowds were increasing, he began saying, This generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. I just finished talking about how they were asking him for a sign. Jesus refers back to that 
And then he says, this generation is an evil generation. And by the way, this generation, this generation, this generation, whenever you see this generation, it's referring to the evil generation of the Jews. And in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, it says, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. So all that stuff that people love to read in the Olivet Discourse that happens at the end of time, no, it's when this evil generation would not pass away. While that evil generation is still alive, that's when all those signs, the earthquakes, the famines, the rumors of war, the tearing down of the temple stone from stone and so forth, and all of that, and the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, all of that, and the sky will turn, and the blood will, and the moon will turn blood red, and all of that is before this evil generation passes away. Now, what sign was it that was going to be given to this evil generation? The sign of Jonah, because Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, and all of a sudden he came out and preached to Nineveh. That's a heck of a sign. And of course, that's the sign of the resurrection as Jesus was in the grave three days and came up as the resurrected Lord. Now, the NIV Study Bible points out that several times the Jews asked for a sign and Jesus refused, always. Luke eleven sixteen and others as a test were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Matthew twelve thirty eight through 39. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And then he says, yeah, you'll see the sign of the prophet Jonah. Mark 8, 11, then Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, demanding him of him a sign from heaven to test him. Let's read a little bit more in Matthew 12, 39 through 42, which may or may not be a parallel passage. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at Jonah's proclamation. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. And notice Matthew's use of generation, evil generation, adulterous generation, this generation, this generation. This is key when you try to interpret that enigmatic verse in the Olivet Discourse. I think it's Matthew 24, 38, maybe 39. I can't remember somewhere around there. It says, all these things will take place before this generation passes away. Giving a plug for an Orthodox Preterist interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. All right, we'll go to Luke 11, verse 30. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. And again, I've already mentioned, because he came out of the... Just as Jonah was three days in the fish, good as dead, buried, boom, he came up out of his tomb, of his watery grave, his coffin being the fish's stomach. Likewise, Jesus came out of his watery grave, his grave claws uh, having held him, and he came out and and resurrected from the dead. Luke 11, verse 31, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, because she came to the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. And of course, this is referring to 1 Kings 10, 1 through 10. I really don't want to read all of this. We can read here the queen of Sheba. I heard about Sheba was a, a southern Arabic kingdom down there in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula down there, probably around Yemen maybe, somewhere on the coast of the Red Sea or the Indian Ocean. The Queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's fame connected with the name of Yahweh and came to test him with difficult questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very large entourage with camels bearing spices, gold in great abundance, and precious stones. 
she came to Solomon and spoke to him about everything that was on her mind. So the point is, is that this woman came all the way down from the Arabian Peninsula up to Jerusalem to hear about the wisdom of Solomon, and she really wanted to hear. But now somebody greater than Solomon, namely Jesus, is there, and you guys don't want to listen to me. This is quite easy to interpret here. He's basically saying, I'm better than Jonah. Jonah preached repentance, and these nasty Ninevites repented, and here I'm greater than Jonah preaching to you, but you Pharisees won't repent. And that wise woman of, excuse me, the queen of Sheba went to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She came all the way that, on that long journey to hear Solomon, and I'm greater than Solomon, and you're standing right here, and you won't listen to what I say. Luke 11, verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation. Again, there's that phrase, this generation. And condemn it. And by the way, the judgment on the Jews, there's a lot of anti-Semitism because people say that all of their sins passed down from generation to generation all throughout 2,000 years of history. No, it was that generation of the Jews. One generation of the Jews. They paid for They killed Jesus and they paid for it in eighty seventy. But that doesn't mean that Jews of all time are paying for it. They didn't have anything to do with it. Their forefathers might have, but you can't condemn people for the sins of their forefathers. They, the, the descendants had nothing to do with it. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's proclamation. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Of course, the men of Nineveh, since they repented at a lesser preacher than Jesus, so they therefore have reason to point their fingers at the Jews and say, well, you didn't repent when the greater preacher was there, Jesus. Luke 11, verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in the cellar under a basket, but on a lampstand, so that those who come in may see its light. Now, it's not immediately obvious how this follows on the verses we've been looking at. Before we take a look at how that might be so, let's look at some other scriptures which say the same thing or similar things. Matthew 5:14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Luke 8:16. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a basket or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a lampstand, so that those who come in may see its light. Mark 4:21. He also said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? Isn't it to be put on a lampstand? So you see, this idea of Jesus being a light, he doesn't want to hide it, and that one, and that's his main point here. He's saying, look, I haven't hidden my teaching. I haven't hidden my miracles. You people aren't listening. People of Nineveh listened. The wise woman, the queen, the wise queen, of, the queen of Sheba listened to the wisdom of Solomon. You people aren't listening to me. I put my light out. I didn't hide it. I put it where everybody could see it. And you're still not listening. NIV Study Bible puts it this way. Jesus has spread light everywhere. He has not hidden it. But in response... The Jews asked for greater signs. So the problem wasn't that Jesus didn't give light. The problem was the faulty vision of the Jews. That's kind of what Jesus is getting here. You guys ain't listening to me. You guys aren't seeing. John Gill adds this. Jesus and the disciples didn't preach in corners and private houses and secret places. They preached in the streets. They preached in the synagogues. They preached in public places. Luke 11 verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. But when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. There is another occasion, which is probably not a parallel occasion, in Matthew 6:22, where Jesus said a similar thing. 
The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. So think about an eye being a lamp, being like a window, if you will. So if there's light outside, the light goes through the, through the window of your eye. And so that's like your lamp, your eye being a lamp, which lights up the inside of your head. Or in, it lights up your life, if you want to put it that way. So if your eye is good, you're looking at good things, you're looking at spiritual things, your whole body is full of light, you got light everywhere. So look at the light, be filled with the light. But when it is bad, when your eye is bad, your body is also full of darkness. So if your eye is looking at evil, you're going to be filled up with evil. And if you, and if you So he's saying if you, you blind Pharisees would open your eyes and look at the, the Messiah that's standing in front of you, you would be full of light, full of spiritual knowledge. I, and there's light everywhere around you. I am the light of the world doing all these miracles. So it's not that you don't need it. It's not that you need more light. I've given you plenty of that, Jesus is saying, according to the NIV Study Bible. You just need to have good eyes to see the light that's already out there, NIV Study Bible points out. Luke 11, 35 and 36, and we'll close this one down. Take care then that the light in you is not darkness. Now that light in you, that's probably light should be in air quotes. There's no there's no punctuation in the original Greek, but I am really tempted to put some air quotes around light. Take care then that the so-called light in you is not darkness. In other words, if your eye, which is your lamp, is, is looking at dark and you open up your eye and darkness comes into your head, well, you better take care. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no part of it in darkness, it will be entirely illuminated as when a light shines its light on you. So this is a simple metaphor. You're going to look at evil, you're going to be filled up with evil. You're going to look at Jesus, you're going to be filled up with light. And with those happy thoughts, we will close this discussion of Luke 11, verse 35 and 36. And we'll take it up again when we start in Luke, verse 11, 37. We'll look at some of the Pharisees' nonsense about ceremonial washings and such. Hope you enjoyed this audio.